Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Businesses count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And whether you're going into your office or working from home, you need an integrated PC solution. You need the unrivaled built for business PC platform that gives you performance, security, manageability, and stability for your entire PC fleet. The Intel vPro platform. It helps you take care of business and can remotely update, restore, and secure your PCs even if a system is outside of the firewall. Intel vPro. Built for what IT heroes do. Built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the founder of the Swisher Diet. I eat what I want, and if you have a problem with that, you can bite your tongue. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm handing over the show to my executive producer, Erica Anderson, who's been doing some of her own interviews, a extensive amount of them. Clearly, she thinks she can do this job better than I can. Oh, that's so not true, Kara. But today, I do want to do something a little different and tell you a story about someone who I used to work for. Uh, well, you used to work for a lot of people. You worked for Twitter, you worked for Google, you worked for... Katie Couric. Katie Couric. Yeah. What, who didn't you work well, for? Well, this, this story actually starts in Canada. So I went to the TED conference this year in Vancouver, and one of the speakers was my old boss, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. Yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, a lot of people, obviously, were very interested in what he had to say, and I was too, given he was speaking about issues of abuse on the platform and Twitter's responsibility to users, which I worked on some five years ago when I was there. I can't say it was his finest performance. He yeah, was never trying is. to yeah. He was, never is. He, never was, is. he was trying to explain some pretty complex things, but never. there weren't a lot of solutions. But he also seemed a little different. So here, I think we're gonna play this short clip of that right now. We've seen abuse, we've seen harassment, we've seen manipulation, um, automation, human coordination. Uh, misinformation. <clears throat> so these are all these are all dynamics that we were not uh, expecting 13 years ago when we were starting the when we were starting the company, um, but we do now see them at scale. And okay. so a couple of days later, I read a story um, on CNBC that made me think about seeing him again, and it was called "Billionaire Jack Dorsey's 11 Wellness Habits: From No Food All Weekend to Ice Baths." Oh no. Yeah, and this is a list of 11 things that Jack does, which CNBC aggregated from an interview he gave to the Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast. And some of them actually sound pretty standard, like meditating, tracking his sleep, and walking to work. Yep, he's a big walker to work. I've known that for a long time. Yeah. He has a lot of unusual personal habits. Well, I, I mean, I do— compared, Well, not compared to Silicon Valley, but he does. I appreciate it. I mean, he, right, he's, he's really trying to—he's pers pursuing mindfulness, which is probably a good habit. Yes, 100%. Um, and then here's number—but here's number eight on the list— Dorsey only eats dinner. Right. And then number nine on the list is fasting all weekend. And, you know, this this being in the tech industry and now the media industry, I, I had heard about intermittent fasting mm -hmm. um, and also this larger issue or larger trend of biohacking. Um, but it really made me think that this this is something I want to explore more, something I want to learn more about and understand. What is intermittent fasting and the larger trend of biohacking? Who's doing it? What are the motivations? What are 
potential impacts? And even how might it impact broader mainstream food and diet culture? Well, it's something I hear about a lot. And one of the things I, I haven't tried to write a lot about Jack Dorsey. He does look skinny. He looks funny. I don't want to talk about people's personal health, but he looks he looks doesn't look great. I'll be honest with you. And so one, a lot of reporters have written on it, some of them not nicely. Um, I don't think it's any of my business if he wants to do this, if he wants to com- do this. And some levels, I feel that I, I, get in- I encounter a lot of Silicon Valley people talking my ear off about their intermittent fasting. And some days I feel like, fine, it's interesting, it's fascinating. Other times I'm sort of like, hmm. you know, when it comes to men, it's an interesting trend and it's a, it's a new thing that everyone needs to do. When it comes to women, it's an eating disorder. And mm-hmm. so, I, so I sort of veer between the obsession with a, a biohacking. It feels like an eating disorder some days. And other days I'm like, why not try to figure mm-hmm. out how to mm-hmm. be healthier and eat better? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of science behind it. So we're going to talk to three different experts because Mm -hmm. I wanted to actually understand this. What is it? Why are people doing it? And then what are the potential consequences? And I'll say just as a tip to anyone listening, there's no way you can tell by looking at someone if they have disordered eating. We're certainly not suggesting that, but we are going to look into this. Um, So today we're going to play three interviews that we're hoping will start a conversation about those answers. First, you'll hear from HVMN CEO Jeff Wu and longevity expert Dr. Walter Longo, who both have personal and professional experience with the field of biohacking. And then we'll close the show with a conversation with Claire Misko, who has studied diet culture and the trends in quote-unquote wellness today. I'm really glad you're dealing with it on a substantive level because I think there's a lot of jokes made about this, but it's really important to talk about it in in a way that people can reflect on it, whether what it is and whether it could lead to good things or bad Mm -hmm. things or whether it's a giant, arrogant narcissism that infects Silicon Valley in a lot of ways. And that's sometimes I feel like that. Totally. So first up is HVMN CEO Jeff Wu. I started out by asking him to talk about his background and how he first got into biohacking. I'm a computer scientist by background. So I studied computer science at Stanford and got plugged into the entrepreneurship community relatively early in my college and early career. I saw that a lot of my smartest friends, the the smartest people at Stanford were focused on applying their big brains towards making machine learning algorithms better. They're making robots better. They're helping, you know, in a business model format, helping people click more ads. And I thought, well, we're all focused on making robots better or computers better, but can we apply that same energy towards making humans better? We're all humans. We're far from perfect. What if we applied that same education and approach towards human performance? And that got me down the rabbit hole around five, six years ago, looking at applying a systems engineering approach to humans. When I think of biohacking, I think of wild things like gene editing or making our brains part machine. But how would you define what you're trying to do for someone who's not familiar? What is biohacking? Biohacking is simply applying a systems engineering approach to human performance. So an analogy I like to make is that you have rocket engineers designing and optimizing rockets. And for rocket performance, there's quantitative markers like payload uh, capacity, uh, amount of thrust, different safety measures. And these are all measurable, quantifiable things. Mm-hmm. And you can take that same approach where rocket engineers are designing rockets towards human performance. So human performance can be measured in terms of 
cognitive capacity, endurance capacity, different biomarkers or quantitative markers guiding or judging human performance. So simply the notion of biohacking is, okay, can we apply an engineering framework or a mindset into optimizing the inputs into the performance outputs of a human? And I think one of the things that Silicon Valley is well known for is that if you, the saying is, if you can't measure it, well, how can you optimize it? And I think that's mm. kind of a, a, a rallying cry around biohackers. Well, let's measure things that we care about. Uh, again, you know, related to cognitive performance, physical performance, et cetera. And let's figure out ways to optimize it. So tell me a little bit about the company and, and the kind of work that you do and the people who are attracted to HVMN. Our company is a human performance nutrition company, and our flagship technology is our ketone ester drink. And the technology originated from an early 2003 DARPA program around enhancing U.S. warfighter physical and cognitive performance. And we took that IP, partnered with uh, Professor Karen Clark over at Oxford University to commercialize our research and turn it into a, into a product. So I, I think our core customers started off with elite performers, folks mm -hmm. in sport, folks in military. But I think that in today's culture and uh, uh, I guess I, I guess in today's culture, you have more and more of a focus and a realization that we can tweak and optimize and control our own destinies in some way. And that's who we're tapping into, this realization that Nutrition is one of these inputs that is very important in terms of overall human performance, overall human uh, longevity, overall human health span. And we want to empower people to take some responsibility into using these as tools. Okay, so there's people in the military or athletes who want to optimize their performance. And when you and I spoke before this about this earlier, you were talking about mental athletes. Mm -hmm. But tell me, what gets you excited about this field? I think what gets me really excited about this area is that I think it's fundamentally one of the most important, if not the most important things that we as a species have grappled with, and that is who we are and how do we be better versions of ourselves. I mm -hmm. think that you have Roman emperors, Chinese emperors, Incan, you know, Incan warlords all looking for the fountain of youth looking to maximize the experience of our short time on this planet. Mm. And so I think there's a, a very ingrained human desire to understand ourselves and manipulate ourselves to best maximize our will around our environment. Uh, I think that's been shown across the history of our species. I think what's interesting now is that the science and the technology and the sensors and the mm. inputs into the system of human performance is finally now getting to a point where it's no longer just this fantastical dream or this hallucination. This is finally something that we can rigorously, steadily work towards in, in terms of a technological innovation or technological progress. So that might be a long-winded way of saying that I think is a super important problem. Um, and I think that also just ties in quite selfishly into the sense that I want to have more of life. Uh, I, I think most of us, if not all of us, mm. want to have more of this great existence of being on this planet, being alive, being free to experience all the great things that are around us. So in some, in some ways, like biohacking is a pursuit of optimal health. Um, 
physical health, mental health. Let's just talk about intermittent fasting for a second, and mm-hmm. which is what when you eat within a certain window uh, during a day. Yeah, perhaps one way to just couch it in, in the systems engineering approach towards what I think biohacking represents and stands for is that one of the ways to optimize a system is to control the inputs into that system. So your genetics are one variable in that system. Obviously, we don't really control our genetics, but maybe in 15 years we have CRISPR, we can actually use that as a variable. We don't really have that much control of our, around our environment. Obviously, we can move, we can you know, move to a better neighborhood, all of that. But some of the environmental pollutants, that's harder to control. But we, what we can control is more under our control are things like nutrition, things like exercise, things like sleep patterns. And at HVMN, we really focus on nutrition. I think that's where we focus a lot of our attention and we've gotten built a really a large community around intermittent fasting and, and diet. Nutrition or fasting or diet isn't just standalone interesting. I think it's interesting because it is one of the most controllable variables within a mm. engineering approach to optimize human performance. So much of this is driven from ancient practices, right? It, intermittent fasting and a lot of it is not new. It's kind of being packaged in a new way, which I find interesting. I mean, you mentioning like, it's almost like biohacking is a new term for something quite old. No, no, I, I think that's a valid critique, but I would respond with the, the sense that I don't care what the origins are, right? Like, I think end of the day, what I care about is if it works. And I don't care if that practice comes from you know, ancient religions, right? Like fasting has been part of almost every single major religion. Um, and that's thousands of years of practice. Or if it's something like a ketone ester that was invented as part of a DARPA program in the early 2000s. I don't care what the origins are as long as it's safe and it's efficacious. But I would say that to respond to folks that think that biohacking is just like a repackaging, well, I think that that, that, that's it. that seems like a kind of a petty uh, push because I think the point of biohacking or this notion of a systems engineering approach is that you got to measure it, right? And I think folks that you know, wrote you know, the different holy texts that talked about fasting, they didn't understand blood sugar. They didn't understand blood ketones. They didn't understand H1Bs, you know, like you know, the, the, these blood biomarkers, hemoglobin A1C, all these markers that are— are, there's that more drive. access. There's more access to the data, right? I mean, this is exactly. this is a trend across Silicon Valley. There's more data, so there's more information to base exactly. decisions. So, I, so I think to yeah to hit on your point, it's basically taking, regardless of the origins of the techniques, just making sure it actually benchmarks against data. Mm-hmm. I think I've got like one or two more questions. Um, the, this is just keeps coming up. I don't know how to frame it, but I'm just going to try. Which is, you know, playing God. So much of this conversation kind of like feels to me like we're we're playing God. Like we we believe we should live forever. We should, or there is this idea that um, we should expand our life. We should we should want more than we already have. How do you think about God in this work? I think you could make the argument that civilization, as it progresses, is approaching God in the sense that we, as a society, as a civilization have built more and more technologies to manipulate the environment around ourselves and increasingly manipulate ourselves internally, right? Whether through devices or through biohacking techniques that go internally into the body itself. Um, This is not new. This is not new to Silicon Valley rich people saying, hey, I want to be God. It's like, well, humans have always wanted to be God. Like, we've always wanted to approach God, Uh, whether through religious 
spiritual pursuit or through physical. So I, so I guess like, I don't think it's a Silicon Valley like ego thing. I think it's like a, a human thing. But I think the question is, is that outcome that creates more happiness to the world? Interesting. Making more happiness for the world. That sounds good. But my last question for you is, what are the downsides? As someone who is a proponent of this, of biohacking, what would you say the downsides of doing it are? I think the downsides is arrogance. So, you know, the definition that I have with biohacking is that one is focused on the data and, and optimizing different attributes, right? Like the different inputs into payload capacity, thrust, et cetera, and, and the human equivalents to that. But humans are super complicated, right? Again, we can't necessarily model everything. And I think that's where over-engineering or focus overly on the data can be detrimental. And it's maybe just like, so over-optimized that you're actually not healthy. And I think maybe a more visual example of that is plastic surgery on, 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 on people where there's like this specific data-driven perfect nose, perfect eyes, perfect cheek structure, perfect lips, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does, you know, it doesn't matter if you're man, woman. I mean, there's you know, some theoretical perfect and then you get the whole package at the end of the day and it's like, huh, there's something weird, intuitively humanly weird about that outcome. And I think there is that potential danger for mm. biohacking where it's like, okay, you, we understand the subcomponents very, very well. And we're just optimizing just towards the data. And we forget that there's this complex human system that you're optimizing for. And one needs to be thoughtful around, are you really missing the forest for the trees? Are you just focused on like these seven biomarkers and you just totally mess yourself up? So I think that could come from over-arrogance towards our understanding of the system. And to me, it's, that's more of an arrogance problem and an overconfidence problem versus a science or, 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 or the, the, the process of science problem. Thanks to Jeff Wu for coming on the show. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this to talk more about intermittent fasting and biohacking in Silicon Valley. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. That guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Decode. I'm Erica Anderson, in for Kara Swisher. We're talking about biohacking and intermittent fasting and food culture in Silicon Valley. But it's important to note that this didn't start in the tech community. Next up, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Walter Longo, a professor at the USC Davis School of Gerontology and the director of its School of Longevity. He studies the genetics of aging and nutrition. He is also known across the world of biohacking as a true expert, a godfather of sorts. My whole life I've been uh, really focusing on aging, first uh, the genetics of aging, and eventually um, I focused on nutrition and aging. And so that's what I've been doing uh, for uh, close to 30 years now. 
So what about intermittent fasting? What is the idea behind it? And what does the research show about its effects on the body? Yes. So, um, well, first of all, I always say that intermittent fasting doesn't mean anything. Um, intermittent fasting, um, you know, it could go from two hours to two months, right? So uh, what does that mean to be uh, fasting in an intermittent way? You know, we um, it's like saying intermittent eating, right? It's, a, it's the same um, in a way pointless uh, term. Now we need to move away from words like that and we need to move into what exactly is beneficial, what is the scientific evidence for it, um, and uh, and what are the problems associated with, with, with something like, uh, with the different forms, let's say, of uh, intermittent fasting. And so you see that, I mean, I really spent all, you know, good, portion of 25 years in, in looking at, again, how do I get the benefits of, of these dietary interventions, which are very, very clear without the problems. And I'm not sure that a lot of other people have, have put that kind of effort into avoiding the problems. I mean, I think a lot of people put effort into finding the solution, but not avoiding the problem. And so what we've done is to say, well, first of all, and also avoiding uh, facing the reality, right? The reality is a lot of people, mo- the great majority of people will not change their diet, right? They could change their diet temporarily, and in the long run, they'll go back to whatever it is that they like. Now, some people can change it, and, and that's what I just described before. You know, I'm all for it, and, and people should absolutely try to to have a longevity diet, an everyday longevity diet. But then, uh, essentially, we say um, you know, what, what could work uh, that uh, doesn't make people, uh, without making people change their diet? And, and so the fasting mimicking diet, the, the, it, and it's really not intermittent, it's a periodic need-to-do-it basis. And what, what I mean by that? It's really anywhere from four to seven days, and depending on the need, uh, of, a, of a diet that mimics fasting. What does it mean? That it means that we have identified the ingredients that control the genes that control protection and aging. And that was the first, let's say, 15 years of, of my career. And, and then, you know, the last 10, 15 years of my career, then we spent it uh, saying, now that we know what the ingredients, let's say, the proteins and certain amino acids driving a pathway called IGF-1 and another one called Torresis kinase, the sugars driving something called PKA. Uh, so now that we understand this, um, and we also know that these ingredients can control stem cell activation, stem cell dependent generation of new cells, um, now how can we use it uh, so that we disrupt minimally uh, the, uh, the diet of people and at the same time, we get maximum benefits and we have long-term compliance. Um, and so, yeah, so that's uh, the, the, the first clinical trial that we did was a few years ago, and we were about to follow up with a number of, of different ones. And, but the, it was about 100 patients, uh, five-day fasting-making diet called Prolone, and, uh, and then we allowed them to be uh, 25 days with uh, going back to their normal diet. And, and uh, so they went back and forth for three months, and then we tested them uh, one week after the uh, the last cycle, the third cycle. And, uh, and the, the results were pretty uh, remarkable, meaning that uh, we saw long-term effects on, on insulin-like growth factor one, which is one of the, the key growth factors involved in, in cancers and, and, and potentially other diseases, uh, reduction of cholesterol, reduction of blood pressure, uh, reduction of fasting glucose, uh, reduction of systemic inflammation. 
So it seemed to work and also, again, minimize this moment of the burden of, of continuous interventions, intermittent fasting, for example, let's say something that you do every day, every other day, every three days. You know, most people, uh, as we've seen for calorie restriction, uh, most of these uh, chronic interventions are bound to fail in the long run. Uh, it doesn't mean some people are not going to be able to do it. What is intermittent fasting like, where I only eat within a certain window of time? Well, that's a problem. See, it's many things. But let's say the most popular ones are 16-8, um, uh, for example, where you fast for 16 hours, eat for only eight hours a day. Uh, alternate day fasting, where you fast every other day. So one day you don't eat, one day you eat. Uh, and some versions of it have maybe four or 500 calories on the day that you don't eat. So, um, and then uh, there's something called 5-2, uh, where for two days a week, um, usually non-consecutive, you, you don't eat. You know, what I recommend is for sure the 12 hours, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. That seems to be a very, very good uh, a basic rule. You know, don't, if you start eating at 8 a.m., uh, be done by 8 p.m., uh, and people that do that tend to do better or much better. Now the average uh, consumption, Sachin Panda has shown, um, is about 15 hours in the United States. So people mm -hmm. eat for about 15 hours a day. And I think some of the reason for that is this bad idea of recommending that people eat five or six times a day. And so people uh, start spreading it out uh, longer and longer, and eventually we got to 15 hours. Uh, so uh, going back to 12 hours is a good rule. It's time-restricted eating. Uh, going to 16 hours of, of fasting seems to be a bad idea. Uh, why? Multiple reasons. Uh, one of it is... Um, over and over and over, including our own work, uh, people that skip breakfast tend to live shorter and have higher cardiovascular disease. And now there are three or four studies on that. We have the same data. So, you know, most people that do go 16 hours, they skip breakfast. Now you could argue, um, you know, there are other reasons that the breakfast keepers do so poorly, but, you know, uh, that's not a good start, right? So, if, if you start yeah, with a, sh a shorter lifespan and, and higher cardiovascular disease, it's a bad start, yeah. As you know, intermittent fasting has become somewhat trendy in places like Silicon Valley as a way to achieve maximum performance, to optimize the body and the mind. So I want to know, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, you know, I, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't like that idea at all. Um, but um, certainly, um, you know, we, we really focus on, on how to get people to 110 healthy and maybe uh, my second focus is what I call uh, juventology, which is, you know, can we get people to 70 uh, young, you know, 70 young and 110 healthy. That's really been our focus. Um, you know, productivity, I think, you know, if you're uh, young or, or healthy and happy, um, you know, you should be reasonably productive. And, um, and that's, uh, I think, uh, all uh, we uh, will focus on. Uh, now I understand that, you know, some people might like to push it to different limits. And, um, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. And uh, But certainly, um, you know, fasting, uh, particularly fasting mimicking diets, but also uh, for sure the 12 hours of, of fasting, uh, it's going to keep you healthier, keep your mind healthier and, um, and, and more productive. But again, I don't, I don't like this, uh, this direction. I think that eventually people uh, will burn out uh, by trying to squeeze out of uh, every day the maximum. Uh, we're not mm -hmm. made to do that. And um, I think that you could do it for a while, but then you pay the price. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but certainly 
Um, I really like this idea of be respectful of tradition. I mean, I'm all for biohacking. I mean, we're molecular biologists. We've always done biohacking. Uh, that's at the center of our research. It's at the center of the fasting mimicking diet. Uh, but mm. I always say, if you forget where you come from, if you forget these three billion years of, of evolution and the traditions, uh, mm. you're going to have a problem. It's just a matter of time. And, and that's, uh, I think, what's really the problem in Silicon Valley um, is that to assume that everything will go right or go your way. Um, this is the, the problem uh, that came from the pharmaceutical industry also. Uh, you know, you take a drug and, and it's good for right now. It does this and that. Uh, but I assume it's going to be good for 30 years. Well, most of the times, that's not the case, if not all of the time, right? So e eventually, you're going to start to see the, the, the side effects. And so with anything that departs too much from, from tradition, uh, even though, you know, the biohacking data uh, is very positive, you're going to have a problem. It's just a matter of time. Thanks to Walter Longo for joining me remotely from Italy, and special thanks to Massive Arts Studio for recording his side of the conversation. We're going to take another break now, but we'll talk more about biohacking and intermittent fasting after this. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code FOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This is Recode Decode. I'm Erica Anderson, and I'm back in the studio with Kara Swisher. Hey, Kara. Hey, how you doing? So, good. Before we get to this next interview, I want to read you an excerpt from this article, Smash the Wellness Industry by Jessica Knoll. That was in the New York Times a couple months ago. Right. So, here's a quote from this article. It starts here. The diet industry is a virus, and viruses are smart. It has survived all these decades by adapting, but it's as dangerous as ever. In 2019, dieting presents itself as wellness and clean eating, duping modern feminists to participate under the guise of health. Wellness influencers attract sponsorships and hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram by tying before and after selfies to inspiring narratives. Go from sluggish to vibrant, insecure to confident, foggy-brained to clear-eyed. But when you have to deprive, punish, and isolate yourself to look, quote-unquote, good— 
It is impossible to feel good. I was at my sickest and loneliest when I appeared my healthiest. Well, it's absolutely true. I think there's, you know, from everything from goop to others, we've, we've discussed these issues, is that it's be, they repackage the idea of dieting to make people feel bad. It does take advantage of people's insecurities about mm-hmm. their health in mm-hmm. terms of how they look, and, uh, and it plays into the exact same stuff. And at the same time, you do want people to eat more healthy. You do want people to not eat so many packaged foods, so much fried food, so much sugar. Um, I myself am trying to go off sugar because I love sugar. Um, yeah, and I too. <laughs> And I do know the problems of it. And so you don't want to be taken advantage of when you're in a state where you have an idea that something's healthy uh, to be taken advantage of by all these sort of quack solutions. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of mixed messages, that's for sure. So to better understand the larger context of diet culture, I wanted to speak to an expert on the topic of disordered eating. So I found Claire Misko, CEO of the National Eating Disorder Association. She is an expert in eating disorders, diet culture, body image issues, and media literacy. She's published two books, one on self-esteem and one on body positivity and body acceptance. I grew up uh, outside of Baltimore And I started struggling with an eating disorder myself in middle school, which began as a diet, um, like a lot of girls in my grade. um, You know, we were experimenting with, you know, cutting out certain foods, trying to lose weight. So that started me on a path of more and more restriction, um, extreme exercise. Uh, I developed anorexia. And I was fortunate enough to get help at a fairly early point. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of my parents, uh, my mom's a nurse, my father is a doctor. They were really able to recognize that, you know, this was dangerous behavior early Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. Um, Despite the fact that I was getting a lot of positive feedback, which Mm. is pretty typical. Um, We hear that a lot from people who have recovered from or in recovery from eating disorders that in the beginning of their illness, um, they got a lot of compliments and positive reinforcement of the behavior. Um, but I was able to to get into treatment. It was still a, a long struggle for me, mm-hmm. but I think the fact that there was that early intervention made a huge difference in um, my own recovery. Tell me a little bit about your organization and what you do there, what the organization does and, and what your role is. Um, Well, the National Eating Disorders Association is the largest organization in the U.S. serving people who are personally affected by eating disorders. We run a helpline. People can contact us to get directed to treatment options, support groups, um, and also just to get general guidance and support from our trained helpline volunteers. We also focus a lot on early intervention. Mm -hmm. So we have a screening tool on our website. People can, if they're concerned about themselves or someone they care about, um, can answer a series of questions Mm -hmm. to assess whether they might be at risk Mm -hmm. or struggling um, with an eating disorder. We do a lot of work in communities around the country around prevention. Um, We have a program called The Body Project, which is aimed at high school and college age uh, Girls. Who are being bombarded by Instagram and exactly. new ideas of what beauty <laughs> is, right? I imagine social media plays into this as well. Yeah, it's a whole other world. I'm, when I think about when I was struggling, um, I was tearing pages out mm-hmm. of actual paper mm-hmm. magazines and comparing myself to this thin ideal that I was seeing, um, mm. you know, in in print. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different ballgame now um, because they're the onslaught of images and messages um, related to beauty, to thinness, now fitness. 
Um, wellness is another area where we're just getting so many mixed messages and those images and messages are coming at us constantly. Yeah. So social media, we always say it doesn't cause eating disorders, but it can certainly amplify mm-hmm. a lot of the thoughts and behaviors that are going on. There's constant comparison. Um, you are quite literally tracking likes and feedback from others. So, you know, for for people with eating disorders, there's often perfectionism, a need to please others or feel accepted by others. So mm-hmm. a lot of that mm. plays out in a social media environment in a really dangerous way. When I was at the TED conference um, four or five months ago in Vancouver, I was really, I was particularly struck by Jack Dorsey's appearance. And I just want to back up and say, first of all, you know, we really never try to talk about or comment on someone's appearance. I actually know Kara has kind of slapped on the wrist, I think, I think it was Bill Maher who like made an offhanded comment about Mark Zuckerberg looking young wearing a hoodie and Kara was like, let's talk about the substance of the person, not Mark's hoodie, right? So that's, I want to acknowledge that. But I I haven't been able to like, I I just been thinking about how Jack looked because I worked with Jack um, in 2010 to 15 when I was at Twitter, had a few meetings with him here and there, would sit down with him, talk to him about the stuff I was working on. And there was a stark difference in his appearance um, at TED a few months ago. A few days later, this piece came out in CNBC about his his diet, and and he's a proponent of intermittent fasting. He talked about both in that article and also on Twitter about how he's playing around with fasting, you know, doing three day water fasts. Um, so it made me start thinking a lot about biohacking and specifically intermittent fasting and how it's playing out in Silicon Valley. So I'm curious, like. What is your perspective on the trend? I mean, let's just start out here and we can work backwards. But like, what's your perspective on when you see someone like Jack Dorsey and the media talking about his intermittent fasting habits? Like, what is that? As someone who's a specialist or thinks about people's relationship to food, diet culture, what do you think of when you when you see that? Well, it makes me very nervous um, because we know that— Fasting and calorie restriction and dieting are major predictors of disordered eating and full-blown eating disorders. Now, that's not to say that Jack Dorsey has an eating disorder. I don't know that, and we can't make that judgment call, not even by looking at him necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are many people who are struggling with these illnesses where you would not be able to tell Mm. by looking at them, but certainly— you know, this idea of extreme restriction and being broadcast to such a wide audience and as someone with the level of influence that he has, it is concerning. We know that 30 million Americans will struggle with eating disorders at some point in their lives. So there are people who are at risk or actively struggling or attempting to recover from eating disorders um, who should not be fasting um, and for whom this message can be particularly damaging. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about, like, let's set Jack aside because you're right. I certainly don't want to be seen as saying that, you know, Jack has an eating disorder. It's more, what is this manifestation of eating culture um, and perfectionism and how is it playing out in Silicon Valley? And I think with Jack, when he talks about it and when other intermittent fasters talk about what they're doing, I think biohacking actually has been defined as, you know, quantifying your body to like reach peak optimization, right? So that mm-hmm. that's that pursuit of perfectionism. 
Does that sound familiar to you? It does, which is why I said it. The promotion of intermittent fasting and the connection to biohacking and this conversation does mirror a lot of what we hear. People with eating disorders or people who are concerned about someone talking about this idea of trying to change their diet and their, um, you know, life, quote unquote, lifestyle in a way to be healthy when in fact it's masking more serious disordered eating issues. So that is concerning to me. And the whole framing of food and eating as a way of achieving um, perfection or purity or optimum productivity, like all of this is very familiar language to myself as someone who works in the eating disorders field. And again, not everybody who fasts or, you know, tries a fad diet is going to spiral into an eating disorder. But there are many people who are at risk who might go down a a darker path by engaging in this. And the fact that it is so broadly, widely promoted um, and becoming such a part of the the language um, in Silicon Valley is concerning to me. And there hasn't really been a lot of discussion yet about some of the dangers of this, um, which is really why it's of great concern to our organization. Talk to me me about the dangers of it. Well, calorie restriction can lead to disordered eating. It doesn't for everyone, but we know that eating disorders are very complex illnesses. We we talk about them as being biopsychosocial illnesses. Um, So there's a lot of compelling evidence to show that there are people who are biologically, genetically predisposed to developing eating disorders. We also know that there are strong connections to other psychological issues, including depression, anxiety, substance use disorder. Many people with eating disorders have past histories of trauma. Um, So there's the psychological component of this. And then, of course, there's the cultural and societal influences. You know, we live in a culture where there is so much emphasis on perfection and fitness and achievements. Specifically for women. Specifically for women, but I will say that, I mean, when we talk about 30 million Americans, that, you know, the the estimated number of people struggling is 20 million women Mm -hmm. and 10 million men. Mm. So men do struggle with eating disorders. Um, And there is an added layer of shame for men because Mm. these are issues that have for so long been defined incorrectly Mm -hmm. as girls' and women's issues. Mm -hmm. So there's not as much discussion about the way that these messages affect men. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that in this conversation about Silicon Valley and the fact that there are um, men that I've talked to who who have said, I didn't reach out because I didn't think this was something that a guy— could struggle with. I mean, that's becoming mm. less and less of an, of an issue as we start to bust through these myths about eating disorders, but it is still there. Mm. And there's already so much shame and secrecy, you know, for people who are struggling um, and for boys and men, it's that much stronger. There was just a great op-ed in the New York Times about wellness culture. I was going to bring that up actually because I, I, I— Tell us, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, this was last month. Um, There was an op-ed in the New York Times uh, by a writer who made the connection between the 
language and the emphasis on wellness. And she directly connected that to her own eating disorder experience. But then she made a broader argument about how all this language and all this talk and obsession with health and wellness is preventing women from talking about anything else um, and that it is a, a serious problem and that it's basically diet culture mm. wrapped up in health and wellness. health and wellness, which we are hearing a lot about at our organization. Um, we talk to a lot of clinicians and work with a lot of clinicians who specialize in eating disorders mm. who are now saying that many of their patients are presenting with this obsession with with health and wellness. Mm. And that's very problematic when you look at how much that's validated. And I think one of the bigger problems with this conversation around health is that there's so many confusing and mixed messages. So what what is healthy? Mm. And then you have, you know, multi-billion dollar industries selling products that are patently unhealthy wrapped up in, you know, this wellness mm -hmm. language. So it becomes very difficult um, as an individual to navigate all of these mixed messages. And for someone who is already struggling um, with body image, with disordered eating, that's an even tougher battle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that piece was called Smash the Wellness Smash Industry. Smash the Wellness Industry. Right. Yeah. And I can't remember the author's name, but we'll add it in for the final cut because I think it was a really important piece and it, it drove a lot of conversation I remember she opened up by saying she was at a lunch with some other women and they were all talking about what salad they should order. And she looked over longingly at these men sitting, also having a business meeting, eating like hamburgers and steaks. And she was like, I wonder if they have to talk about what they're going to eat. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I do wonder about, especially in the context of this conversation, yeah. um, you know, now that there is so much talk and focus and and fascination with mm. with biohacking. And, you know, I've personally talked to men who work in the tech industry mm -hmm who have acknowledged that they do talk about this stuff and they, they, they've tried mm. different products and it has be started to become more of a topic of conversation. How should the media be covering this? How should they cover billionaires who are fasting? I think it's important to acknowledge the risks associated with these trends. And when you talk about fasting, recognizing that there are a significant number of people whose lives are actively affected right now and those who are in recovery from eating disorders. And that this is an important disclaimer to, to put on these kinds of stories and to not glamorize this or to make the assumption that the, this would, is a choice that's healthy for all people because there are many people for whom it would be quite unhealthy. I also think there's... You know, you talked about the isolation factor with mm -hmm. eating disorders. I do see a similarity there with the way that I hear people talk about, particularly the supplements mm. and like the meal replacements, that it's this idea of, well, I can just keep working. I can sit at my, <laughs> sit at my desk and drink this meal, you know, once every however, whatever that is prescribed. Um, and that there's no sense of community or connection around food. It's just all about, you know, the function, the function of it. And in recovery, 
that's one of the key pieces. You have to learn how to eat in a basic way and in a balanced way. But then there's also the reconnecting with other people Mm. and that food and, and meals can actually be a way of connecting with others and there there's so much isolation with eating disorders so that's something that's another aspect of this that I find concerning interesting yeah yeah I, I worked in tech for eight years I was at Twitter for five and then Google for three and in the beginning when Twitter was small I used to go in the lunchroom and just sit with whoever you know had an open table at an open seat and just get to know people and then as time went on I stopped doing that. And, and I, by the way, I'm not saying this because I had an unhealthy relationship with food. It's because I didn't want to be there. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm just working through the day and I'm getting out. But for, at least for me, and I did see people at Google, like in New York, there's eight cafeterias, something like eight cafeterias yeah. inside. And people do, you know, as teams go and sit together. But, you know, a lot of people just go and, and eat alone or they eat at their desk, right? Mm-hmm. So eating at one's desk is a big, a big trend. And that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that as like the you know, meal supplement. And it's something I think about. So in a lot of cultures, like food brings people together Mm -hmm. and food, you know, breaking bread and making food and eating it is a part of, like you said, connecting. And so what, you know, this is actually something you can't really quantify, but like the enjoyment of being with people when you eat a meal and how will Silicon Valley reckon with that when they're optimizing just for the function of of nutrients? Yeah, it's a really interesting and important question, I think, particularly in the context of, of this conversation when, you know, there there's so much focus and emphasis, um, you know, from these very high-profile people who are talking about, you know, what they do and their practices around food. And none of them, from what I'm, I've seen, involve, like, anyone else or enjoy or mm. the enjoyment aspect of food, I think is a, another big piece of this. So again, it's not to say that everyone who sits at their desk and drinks Soylent has an eating disorder, but it's part of, of that larger of conversation yeah. of how this attitude towards well, food and, and productivity is in some ways mirrors conversations about about eating disorders. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm always interested in anything that gets like techified, that gets that, you know, Silicon Valley kind of takes and is like, we've got a, you know, we've got a better way to do this. And that, mm-hmm. that happens in so many ways, in so many ways, important advancements um, in health and culture and, and information have come out of the Valley. But it's, it's always interesting. And I think worth a beat to stop and ask about you know, other parts of our culture that are being impacted and specifically this pursuit of maximum productivity, the role that food plays, I think is really interesting and and worth a deeper look. So I appreciate you coming on to talk about this. Before we end, like what else, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you think is really important to say, whether it's, you know, we will at the end of this, like link to resources on the on Vox.com for people who might, you know, be struggling. But is there anything just generally you want to hit on that we haven't talked about? Yeah, we've, co- we've covered a lot of ground. I would add in the conversation around health and wellness, there is so much talk about health and wellness and what that means and what that looks like and what products you need to buy and what diet you need to go on in order to achieve health. And I think we really need to talk about how we 
define health. And from my perspective, it needs to be a much more holistic definition. So when we talk about health, we're also talking about our mental health and part, and our emotional health and our ability to engage in life and have mm. relationships and connections with others. And that there's this litmus test that, you know, we talk about where with eating disorders, where if you're thoughts and behaviors and attitudes towards food, weight, body image, exercise are making it difficult for you to enjoy life, feel good about yourself, engage with others. That's a sign of an issue. Thanks to Claire for that enlightening conversation. And thanks again to Jeff and Volter for coming on the show. So what is your takeaway from these interviews? Do you think you understand the topic better now? Yeah, I mean, I definitely do. And I hope listeners do too. But I mean, here's some of my takeaways. Silicon Valley is applying an engineering culture to their bodies. And you can be totally, something that Jeff Wu said, you can be totally obsessed with the complexities of something and know it really, really well, but miss the bigger picture. Claire talked about that too. You know, she wants to expand the idea of health to total health, not just the physical, but the mental. Wu said, sometimes you miss the forest through the trees. So I think it's just, yeah, engineering culture applied to bodies. The other insight is, that they want to play God um, and unlock their maximum potential. You know, there is this manifestation of control. And I'm just curious. I have more questions. Like, what's really going on? What's driving these behaviors? But, yeah, it's um, it's interesting to see men exploring this. Um, well, and they do. They're, they're so narcissistic. This is just a natural extension. As they get older, they were young before, and they want to live forever. And they love themselves in a way that— they really shouldn't, but yeah. there you have it. Yeah, and as and just as a heads up for listeners, that Claire's organization, the National Eating Disorder Association, has a website and a confidential phone line where you can get help if you're concerned that you or a loved one may have an eating disorder. Support resources and treatment options for yourself or your loved one are available. You can send text, instant messages to one of their volunteers at nationaleatingdisorders.org, or you can call them at 1-800-931-2237. All right, Erica, thank you for guest hosting this special episode of Recode Decode on this important topic. It really is very interesting, and I do think there's going to be, there should be more study of how we are better humans, uh, but maybe that can help more of us than just the rich men of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people find you online if they want to talk to well, you more about it? I'm on Twitter at Erica America. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And then make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Top Ranking Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode with Eric Anderson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.